So our scriptures this morning come from the first book of Kings, and if you have your Bible, you can open it up to 1 Kings chapter 2, 1 through 4, and then we're going to flip over to um, 1 Kings 3, 1 through 15. If you don't have your Bible with you, you do have your pocket phone, and you can find the scriptures there. I just think that's so amazing. I wish we had it in seminary. <laughs> Would have been so much easier. <laughs> we, we used a Bible this thick. <laughs> so if you have it, hear the word as given to us in the book of Kings. At the time of David's death, or as the time of David's death approached, he gave his, this charge to his son Solomon. I am going where everyone on earth must someday go. Take courage and be a man. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all his ways. Keep the decrees, commands, regulations, and laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all that you do and wherever you go. If you do this, then the Lord will keep the promise he made to me. He told me, if your descendants live as they should and follow me faithfully with all their heart and soul, one of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. And then 1 Kings 3, 1 through 15. So Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married one of his daughters. He brought her to live in the city of David until he could finish building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around the city. At that time, the people of Israel sacrificed their offerings at local places of worship, for a temple honoring the name of the Lord had not yet been built. Solomon loved the Lord and followed all the decrees of his father David, except that Solomon too offered sacrifices and burned incense at the local places of worship. The most important of these places of worship was at Gibeon, so the king went there and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. That night, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream, and God said, What do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. Solomon replied, you showed great and faithful love toward your servant, my father, David, because he was honest and true and faithful to you. And you have continued to show this great and faithful love to him today by giving him a son to sit on his throne. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made me king instead of my father, David, but I I'm like a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they cannot be counted. 
give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. So God replied, Because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you asked for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has ever had or ever will have. And I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. And if you follow me and obey my decrees and my commands as your father David did, I will give you long life. Then Solomon woke up and realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, where he sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then he invited all his officials to a great banquet. So I want to start this morning with a couple of questions. And the first is, where is your heart? Okay, let me put it another way. What is it that you dream about? You know, when I was younger, I dreamt about travel, visiting Alhambra in Spain, or England and seeing Westminster Abbey, and following in the footsteps of Queen Elizabeth I. She's always been my hero. Or visiting Israel and following in the footsteps of Jesus. I also dreamt of flying like a bird. That's for another time. (laughs) I had other dreams too. I dreamed of riches. I dreamed of a cottage by the sea and of teaching. And I had one other dream in my earlier life that seemed impossible until it wasn't. That was ministry. What is your greatest desire? What is it that when you close your eyes at night and lay your head on the pillow, of you. (laughs) Myself as well. History was uh, one of my undergraduate minors. And today I 
still love reading about history. I was having a conversation with Carolyn the other day about uh, reading history and, and historical novels, uh, ones that have a, a fair degree of history embedded in them. And I've always been drawn to the historical books of the Hebrew Scriptures. These books are all those purple ones in the upper row there, you know, beginning with Joshua and Judges, Ruth, which is set in the time of Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and finally Esther. Twelve in all. However, if we read these books simply as history, the history of the early Hebrews, we miss some important understandings because these books represent not only the history, but they represent the early development of the Hebrew people and in particular the development of their faith and consequently, our faith. Now, we've previously studied the first five, the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy, or the law and teachings. They were given by God through Moses to the Hebrew people. But going forward from that, we begin to see a change. In fact, God foresaw this change, and in Deuteronomy 7, verse 15, God provided instruction saying, Be sure to anoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Not what we want, what God wants. And in the same passage, God gives the qualifications of who would be that king. Everything that flows, or that follows Deuteronomy, then begins to be a transition from the established theocracy, governance under God, to monarchy. We've read through Joshua, testimony of the early leadership of Moses and Joshua, both faithful servant leaders, and then through Judges and Ruth. And we've seen in First and Second Samuel the establishment of the monarchy, first with King Saul and then the Davidic dynasty. Now, because Pastor Stan is resting his voice, we have flip-flopped weeks I was going to preach next week as he was going to be away. Uh, told him as a birthday present to him, I'd, I'd preach in his place because he and David would be away. But he's got laryngitis. And so I said I would preach this week and he will preach next week. And next week, he will tell you all about King David. This week, I'm going on to King Solomon, his son. I'll try not to give a whole lot away. <laughs> I do need to make a few comments, though. While the early Hebrews lived under God's law, we, and as we witnessed the gradual movement to human leaders, the judges and the kings, we're also increasingly going to see their weaknesses. 
Our biblical heroes, we know, are not perfect. Not under Saul, not under David, not under Solomon. None of them were perfect. But what they did do was they created, with God's guidance and help and blessing, a united monarchy consisting of Judah and northern or Sumerian Israel. This united monarchy was at the height of its power under Solomon. Solomon reigned for almost 40 years, and Israel gained its greatest splendor and wealth. Now think about it. Solomon built the holy temple in Jerusalem. And the riches were incredible. And reading through his account of his meeting with the queen of Sheba, we can visualize the, the riches flowing into the kingdom. Ivory and gold, algam wood and precious stone. And all of this was turned into goblets and shields and chariots, all golden and gleaming. Nothing was made from silver because at that time, under Solomon's reign, silver was of little value. The only silver you would find in the palace was that which came during King's David, King David's time and, and had been an inheritance to Solomon. Food was so plentiful, so abundant under Solomon that each man owned his own fig tree. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world wanted an audience with Solomon to hear his wisdom, to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Imagine that. The whole world coming in to Jerusalem to speak with King Solomon. What a nation that would be to live in. Now I need to back up for just a moment. From the beginning, the Hebrew people were called into a relationship with God. The early Hebrews were called to be what we have termed a covenant people. Each time they were saved by God, saved from the flood with Noah, called by God through Abraham with all the blessings, rescued from slavery in Egypt with Moses, and then a further covenant renewed under King David. And ultimately, the new covenant that we have in Christ. Now, why is this important? As we're reading through Scripture, as we're reading through this history, we are speaking of covenantal relationships, not just a history. It's the people's relationship 
with God. And God's covenant forms the framework of the entire scripture. The whole concept of covenant is promise. And of promise of continuing relationship with God. Initiated by God. We can read the histories... And we can read of the violence, of the victories, of the losses, of the blessings. But we might miss the blessings and the consequences of what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. Each of the covenants given were dependent on their obedience to the obligations that were set down by God. And obligations, by the way, they all agreed to. But those covenants were broken. And as the kings disobeyed, degenerated in their obedience and behavior and attitudes, we see that the prophets' voices increased. First is lesser voices, they're called even in scripture, the lesser prophets who came in disguise. They become later. We hear the voices raised and they become major prophets. So as we read through this part, it's tempting to look at the socioeconomic and, and political assessment of Israel, but it is not we need to read it as a covenantal assessment. Now, I've used the word covenant several times. You've probably heard it more this morning than you've heard in a lifetime. It's not a word we use very often. Covenant is initiated by God. But we have other covenants. We have a marriage covenant. How many of you have a marriage covenant? I know a couple of you do. You stand in the church before God and pledge yourselves to one another. God is there with you in all cases. These covenants are higher than contracts. We've entered into contracts, many of us, in our jobs, lifetime. But a covenant is higher than any human, contact, uh, human contract that we can make. And yes, it is even higher than a marriage covenant or with a system or an organization. I struggled with this concept of covenant at first when I heard it. And I remember coming to some understanding of it while I was back in seminary. I went down to Drew in New Jersey and um, I absolutely loved it there. It was a wonderful school. When we went in, Drew made a contract with the incoming class, and we with the seminary. In August of 1991, there was a matriculation service held, and there at the, at the front of the chapel, was the altar, and on the altar was the matriculation register. A book that every seminarian entering Drew signed, and from the beginning of the, the time of the beginning of the seminary. We would do our best 
to give our hearts and our minds to our studies and to the um, curriculum and, and contribute to the Drew community, but through prayer and, and positive relationships and lifting up one another. And the professors would do everything they could to support us in our calling to the service of God in Christ's church. This offer included offering specific classes plus electives. One of the classes that was required of us for graduation was Theology 101. It was a basic intro course and kind of a good thing for future pastors to be studying and engaging in. Now, our class was exceptionally large in 1991. It seems at um, theological schools anyway, when the economy begins to tank, entrances go up or applications go up. And our class did just that. Our class was double the size that they expected, that they admitted. And so this first term we went to register. And half our class registered quite successfully. But when the second half of the class went to register, we found some of those basic required classes closed. Such was basic theology. No problem, we're told. We could take it in our second year. Plenty of classes we could take our first year to meet our requirements. So in our second year, we went to register, but the freshman class always registered first. So the sophomores that missed taking Theology 101 found themselves again shut out of the class. It was full. The freshmen were, had already registered. In order to take higher level courses, though, we, we had to get an exemption, and the registrar was very willing to give us an exemption. So we went on and took our higher level courses. But the registrar would not exempt us from this course for graduation. So in our final year of seminary, we found ourselves sitting in a class of advanced theology with Dr. Lee, who was the professor of um, Han Korean theology. And he was not happy that he had students taking advanced theology that had no understanding of the beginning concepts. But he was gracious, and he suffered through, <laughs> as did we. <laughs> we went through the motions. We went through the motions. And yes, in June, we all graduated. But, you know, have you ever had to discipline a child that had disobeyed you? And they finally agree to do whatever it is you ask them to do. They don't always do it with the best attitude or the best behavior. It's not a happy situation. Well, we felt that Drew had broken covenant with us. And 
Overall, in the scheme of things, this was minor compared to some of the problems we face in the world. But we know that covenants are broken every day. Yes, we graduated. Yes, we did get our basic classes in. But it was stressful. You see, God's covenant is of the highest order. It's sacred. It's personal. And I think obedience sometimes is a poor word for what God really wants of us. We call it obedience. And we do something that we're told to do. But where is our heart? And where is our mind? King Solomon didn't pray for riches or power. And in his prayer, he humbled himself as, as a little child. He prayed for a discerning heart to govern. And it pleased the Lord. And, and Solomon prospered. Yet Solomon was like his father. He was flawed. David lusted after Bathsheba. And Solomon broke God's command to not take a wife who was not Hebrew. In fact, he took 700 wives and concubines. Now, I don't know if that's a literal number, <laughs> but certainly when we're talking hundreds, we know there were a great number. He may have ruled with wisdom. He may have built the temple and brought the ark up into it. But he loved many foreign women. And specifically from the tribes or the nations that he had been forbidden to marry into. And Solomon would not give, give in. Solomon held to it. God had said, you must not intermarry. That's back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I have a hard time believing that Solomon didn't know this. That someplace along the line, King David hadn't given him a little instruction or guidance in, in who he should and should not marry. He did it anyway. He said, you must not intermarry. For they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Sure enough, Solomon's kingdom is torn in half. Not immediately, but by his son. You see, Solomon had an official who was named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was promised that he would rule over ten of the tribes, two remaining for Solomon's son, Rehoboam. But Jeroboam didn't quite trust things, got into a little skirmish, and he escaped down into Egypt. While Rehoboam turned to his advisors, the elder advisors, when the people complained to him, and Rehoboam wouldn't listen to them, the people 
complained about things being too harsh. And when, he, when the advisors told him, well, you know, go a little easier, he didn't like that. So he went to his younger advisors, and his younger advisors were harsher. And ultimately, he lost his kingdom. Ten of the tribes left and went under, finally, the leadership of Jeroboam, while Rehoboam kept Jerusalem and one other small territory. The kingdom, that great united monarchy, disappeared. And why? The leaders did not trust God. God wants our hearts. God wants us to trust him. Psalm 37 tells us, don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. For like grass, they'll soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they soon wither. Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. Let me repeat that. Trust him and he will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Yeah, I've been thinking about covenant a lot lately. You heard Pastor Stan mention before the disaffiliation. Well, I was one of the co-chairs of that group, and it was not fun. <laughs> it was a difficult, hard work, and, and I thought about covenant a lot. Because what we've just done in our vote is we have voted basically to break the covenant we have with the Greater United Methodist Church. And we did it by 91%, which means basically we were of one mind. But the question here is now, where do we go from here? We have voted to become independent in the short term, at least, maybe in the long term. But we could choose to decide to affiliate with another denomination. And I'm sure a lot of you have heard conversation about that. But the fact is, we are leaving one church and considering joining into a new covenant with new rules, new expectations, new promises. And it won't. Build a relationship and to build trust. And as we do, we really have to ask ourselves are we all in? Are we all in? We today live under so many covenants our covenant with God, our covenant with one another as a church covenants of marriage. You know, every summer, 
or actually every Sunday, I should say, at the very beginning of the service, we would take times and where the pastor here goes around and asks for your prayers, we would ask for joys and celebrations. And it would always amaze me as I sat in the congregation that I would see people raise their hand and they would say, today we're celebrating a month of marriage or we're celebrating 10 years of marriage or 40 years of marriage or 50 years of marriage. And in my second church, I was shocked one Sunday when doing the same thing, a couple raised their hand and said, today we are celebrating 72 years of marriage. And he turned and he looked at his wife and he said, and she's still my bride. <laughs> yeah, That's a covenant, a covenant made in heaven. And we finally live in the new covenant. If you're in the band and you haven't already come to the front, you might want to think about it. <laughs> we live under the, co the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And we celebrate that. We've, we've just celebrated Easter. We've just celebrated the resurrection. And we know that because Christ has risen and we are in this new covenant, we are a forgiven people. We have an advocate before God and we can go forward. We'll make mistakes. We'll do things wrong. But if our heart is in tuned with God, God will make it right. God will bless us, as I believe God has already been blessing us. So I ask one more time this morning, where is your heart? Are the desires of your heart such that you can commit everything to the Lord our God?